three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with Jeez. some of these people. I just, Put um, down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, Would you rather? Right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. Hello, namaste, shalom, and welcome to Nervous Habits. Hey, how'd you get how'd you get in front of the mic? Uh, welcome to Nervous Habits, episode 22. I'm your host, Ricky Rosen, and I am delighted to have back one of my previous guests uh, who will dive into one of my favorite topics that we have yet to explore on the pod as of yet, and that's personality, guys. We are going to be answering questions like, what exactly is personality and how do our personalities form? What are the ways in which we can measure personality types? How does the Myers-Briggs test differ from the Enneagram? Do our personalities change over time or will they remain the same forever? And finally, how do you know if you have a personality disorder or if you're just really, really paranoid? All of that and so much more on this week's episode of Nervous Habits. Guys, keep those emails coming, nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com, nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at nervoushabitspodcast. Podcast, and we are actually on Twitter now as well uh, at Nervous Habits underscore um, Twitter and YouTube. We created a YouTube account. Um, you can search clips from previous uh, Nervous Habits episode uh, episodes by searching Nervous Habits Podcast. Um, so we ha- we now have a presence on pretty much every social media platform: Instagram, Twitter, uh, YouTube, um, and as I said, you know. Keep sending those those emails, those suggestions. Um, if you have some feedback, some insights, if there's topics or guests that you want uh, to hear more of, do not be shy in reaching out. And now I would like to welcome back to the podcast. She's already welcomed herself back a little bit. Uh, my sister, uh, doctoral psychology student Holly Rosen. Welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you, Ricky. Well, you won't be invited back if you don't um, improve your... I was invited back the first time. Um, so Holly, uh, since uh, episode seven has become a, you know, an adamant, uh, you know, ardent follower of the pod and, and really excited to have her back. Um, I feel like our first conversation on mental illness was incredible, but uh, kind of wish we had more time. Um, the I think the episodes back then were only like 45 minutes and now uh, episode 15, I think that was like an hour and 45 minutes. So <laughs> definitely want to make sure we exhaust all the topics here and... I guess the first question that I want to ask you, Holly, is, you know, how would you define personality? Because every day we describe and assess the personalities of the people around us. We'll, you know, say, oh, he or she has a great personality. Um, you might look at someone and say, he gets his personality from his dad or, you know, my son is is really hyperactive and has an eager personality. But how many people actually understand what personality is and, and how it forms? So first question is, how would you explain to a lay person what personality what what makes up a personality? Well, personality is very complex, you're right, but I tend to um, subscribe to the APA, the American Psychological Association's definition of personality, which is the individual differences in characteristic patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving. And personality often includes different personality characteristics like sociability and irritability, for example. Absolutely. I, I think that the APA nails it when they say that there's three um, you know, fields of personality. It's how we, think, how we think, feel, and behave in different ways. Um, I would say, you know, if I was like to explain it to a five-year-old, um, I, I feel like personality is just the distinct way that all of us interacts with the, with the world and the people around us. Um, and I think, you know, what Holly was getting at is, is it's different from person to person. No two people have identical personalities. Now, that being said, as psychologists, as scientists, what, what we or rather what you do is you try to put people into little buckets. So one of the, the foundational um, principles of psychology, of personality psychology, is the theory of ocean, O-C-E-A-N for, you know, our illiterate folks out there. And what what is ocean um, and, you know, how does how does ocean relate to personality psychology so ocean is a very famous acronym that stands for five important personality traits openness conscientiousness agreeableness neuroticism an extroversion don't forget an extro- extroversion she, who's she, the she, expert here yeah she had she had an she had an, <laughs> a moment of introversion so openness conscientiousness <laughs> Extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, right. and explain those are big words. Those are big words. Some of our listeners are, are are younger, so I want you to to explain what each of those mean. So openness refers to imagination and insight characteristics. 
people who are low on openness tend to be more traditional and may even struggle with abstract thinking. Conscientiousness refers to the dimension that includes thoughtfulness, good impulse control, and goal-directed behaviors. So you can imagine someone who wasn't as conscientious, if they're on the very low end, could be sloppy or disorganized. And extroversion is characterized by people who are excitable, sociable, talkative, assertive. People who are low on extroversion are typically introverted and they get drained from social events or from people. So next, the agreeableness dimension. It includes areas such as trust, altruism, kindness, affection, and other pro-social behaviors. While those who are low on agreeableness are often competitive, they can even be manipulative. The next is neuroticism. It's characterized by sadness, moodiness, and emotional instability. So people who are high on this trait may have mood swings a lot, anxiety, irritability, and people who are low are very emotionally stable. They're um, characterized as resilient as well. Okay, yeah, awesome. I mean, that's a mouthful. There's a lot to unpack there, but I think the the most important takeaway is that Psychologists will use these five pillars um, of ocean, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism as a way of quantifying and qualifying personality. So um, like if someone is high in openness, low in extroversion, high in neuroticism, and low in agreeableness, they might have a certain personality type. Um, So I guess my question now is, do you believe that these five traits alone tell the per- tell the full story of a person's individual unique personality? I mean, are are there other factors that are missing here? Are there traits you can think of that don't fit neatly into these buckets or do you think that every personality trait out there could be squeeze, you know, night, uh, neatly folded into one of these five ocean categories? Um, I think this acronym definitely has merit and it's all-encompassing in some ways. Um, these five five categories are certainly very important, but I don't think that it contains all of the personality qualities that make up someone's personality. I think that a big one missing here is a person's attachment style that they developed um, in early infancy. So that that constitutes their comfort with intimacy, their inclination or comfort depending on the people who they were raised by, their comfort being depended upon. Um, That's not really covered here. And in addition, researchers found other missing factors in ocean like honesty, humility, prejudice, consideration, seductiveness or sensuality, ego resiliency, heroism, and mental illness. So there's a lot missing here. Um, It definitely has merit, but it doesn't have everything. Yeah, so like, for example, if someone struggles with intimacy out there and their personality type is avoidant or, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, someone's very codependent, you couldn't necessarily quantify any of that just by looking at these five categories. You need more to tell the story. So I think that's that's an excellent – and also the whole the whole thing with mental illness. We'll get later in the, in the show. We'll talk about, um, you know, psychopathological disorders in personalities. And very much it's, it's difficult to, uh, you know, to paint that picture just by looking at these – five um, things. But, you know, in a moment, we'll, we'll be talking about personality tests like Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram and the Rorschach Ink test. And a lot of these tests, Holly, they derive from ocean. Like a big part of Myers-Briggs is extroverted versus introverted. Um, and, you know, that that's one of the uh, most important, the first letter of Myers-Briggs. So it is as a foundational point for us to make it is crucial to understand that um, all of psychology, for the most part, my understanding is, subscribes to the idea that these are the five most important traits of personality. How open you are, how conscientious you are, introverted, extroverted, if you're agreeable, and uh, neuroticism. Okay. Now, before we go into these methods of measuring personality, I do want to go into how our personalities form. That, Of course, the nature versus nurture debate that um, listeners have probably heard ad nauseum. Uh, people have been debating for literally millennium, uh, millennia. And that's to what degree does our genetic composition play a part in, for example, how extroverted we are or how emotionally resilient or how altruistic? And to what degree is it a product of our upbringing and our external environment? What do you think, Holly? I can say that they are both very, very important. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, someone who has more serotonin might be more extroverted or more outgoing. Certain, I don't know that for a fact, but certain neurotransmitters um, do are linked to specific categories of personality. 
I'm going to put you on the spot real quick because I, I, I think I think our listeners are just just curious instinctively. If if someone had a gun to your head and they had to ask you which which child, let me give you a hypothetical. Which child would end up, um, you know, under better circumstances? The child that has. Uh, two incredible genetic parents, uh, you, you know, uh, parents who are intelligent and emotionally resilient and altruistic, but grows up on, you know, the, the, the streets with a ton of adversity, or the child who grows up in an amazing household with support and love, but their genetic composition is is not as, you know, not as great. Maybe their parents were high school dropouts who weren't intellectually ambitious. Just your gut instinct, who would end up better off of those two children? So the person with the more favorable upbringing would end up uh, more well off because genes are important, as I said, but they're not everything. They're a backbone. So someone who's um, born with not the best genetic composition or with a lot of imbalance in their chem- uh, brain chemistry or specific neurotransmitters. Hold on. Sushi. Yeah, we, 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 have a, we have a sushi break, guys. Hold on one moment. Be right down. Thank you. Should I go get it or should she go get it? That's, <laughs> do, do you want to? All right, we're just going to pause. The for host a goes. All right, I'll get it. Hold on a second. So before we were rudely interrupted by the sushi delivery guy, you 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 were basically saying that nurture, <laughs> in some context, nurture is more important because why? Well, if someone has a favorable environment, a loving environment with really receptive primary caregivers this is my attachment side coming out but that's really really important to have that kind of environment of security and it basically can and there's research to support this offset some of the poor or unfavorable genetic composition that someone was born into interesting but the reverse may not be true so (laughs) so poor genetics can be offset by great upbringing but great genetics cannot offset a poor upbringing always. If someone has has a, right. a, a resilient family that does well with right. adversity but they're, you know, living on the streets and they have, you know, uh, they're hungry and Absolutely. If someone has a strong chemical composition with, you know, ego resiliency, a balance of their brain chemistry and whatnot, poor experiences growing up, especially intense adversity, can actually alter someone's brain chemistry and it could it you know, it creates your neurotransmitters change. Your brain is is plastic. It's flexible. It doesn't stay the same. So you know it it goes from it goes from good to bad, and the experiences unfortunately harm you in some way. Right. And and it's interesting. I'm 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 glad that I pushed you on this because I think at first you were very like you're very much like they're both important. But from what you just said about the plasticity of the brain and how your neurotransmitter balances may change, I think it sounds like you're coming down on the nurture side, which personally I agree with. Um, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're right. No, I was speaking also from a very neutral perspective, but yeah, you're right. It's important to take into account the extremes as well. And if we look at a little bit of research real quick, so the research suggests that both biological and environmental influences play a role in our personality. So there's something called a twin study where they measure two sets of people with identical genetic composition. That way they can rule out when the genes are the same, they can rule out that and just look at the uh, environmental factors like a control group. Um, And the study showed that both nature and nurture do play a role in the development of ocean, those big five characteristics. However, okay, in one study that they did where they looked at 123 pairs of identical twins, the findings suggested that the heritability of each trait was different, meaning some of these five traits, Holly, were, uh, were more dependent on environment than genetics and some were more dependent on genetics and environment. So we look at extroverted versus introverted. 53% of those uh, studies suggested that the heritability um, was greater for extroversion, 53%, as well as 61% for openness. Heritability of each trait was 53% for extroversion and 61% for openness. So that right there suggests that whether or not you are introverted or extroverted and whether or not you are imaginative and creative as opposed to more traditional and struggling with abstract, that may depend on your genetics. Do you, you know, believe that to be true, that those traits are, you know, more genetically, um, you know, affected or or you just think, it, it you know, it, it, it's a wash? You know, I'm kind of surprised by that, but I am not too familiar with the research um, about ocean, but... You know, I, I would tend to agree with that, but I want to see some replication yeah. studies. Yeah, let's show show the replication. And actually, um, if you look at other traits like agreeableness, for example, how how well you you know trust and, and pro social behaviors and altruism, that's more forty one percent of the uh, of the twins studied 
uh, 41% were affected by heritability. So that might be more environmental. 44% for conscientiousness, that might be more environmental. And 41% for right. neuroticism. Neuroticism is your, your mood. So, I mean, that kind of jives with what you said before. Because if your mood and emotional instability, neuroticism, is more affected by environment, that makes sense. If you have a tough upbringing, you know, that's going to shape you later in life. Um, so it very much, I guess the point is with nature nurture, there's no one size fits all. It, it runs the gamut. It's different for, uh, for each trait. Um, it's not an exact science, but honestly, I, I'm in agreement with you. I think that nurture is, is, su- is super uh, influential. Now, I want to get into a really fun topic to discuss and something that I think has become very mainstream, very pop psychology and that is how do we measure our personalities? Because you know, as I alluded to, personality is a very uh, difficult thing to quant- to qualify or quantify because it's just what makes all of us different. But that hasn't stopped psychologists from trying. And I guess the first thing to clarify is there's different types of, of measurement tests. Um, some are objective, which are self-report measures, um, and those rely on an individual's personal response, and they're relatively free of rate or bias. Rate or bias is like if if I'm a therapist and I ask you a question and you answer, I'm going to kind of splice your answer, inject my own biases and my own opinions when I'm interpreting it. So for example, for an objective test, I would give you, you're my patient, I would give you a chart of six statements. You, you know, It would be like, I'm easygoing, I enjoy time alone, um, I have high standards. And then you would indicate for each statement whether you strongly disagree, somewhat disagree, somewhat agree, strongly agree, or no opinion. This is the typical Likert scale. Um, so that's that's one one test that I think a lot of um, medical professionals use, and then you have uh, the Rorschach ink test, which I believe has become less used in the last decade or so. But obviously, you would know better. What happens with the Rorschach ink, ink block test is um, they will present to you a, a, a ink block. Right. Yeah. No, no. It's essentially like like a, a very ambiguous looking object. So pic- picture like picture like a cloud or something. And they'll ask you what does it look like. And from your answer, they'll draw a conclusion. So if you say that it looks like a broken heart, you know it might indicate depression. If you say that it looks like um, a, a goofy dog or I don't know what exactly or, or like a mushroom, um, <laughs> they, they'll draw the conclusions from that right. too. So um, do you still see it a lot, or, or is it becoming obsolete? So the Rorschach ink block test is definitely fading out. Um, it's more of a traditional form of personality assessment. It, it makes it does have merit, and it has good psychometric properties for sure, and good reliability, which a lot of of its critics overlook. But that's exactly a very simplified version of what the test encompasses. Someone says what they think the ambiguous picture looks like, and that person's imagination, their creativity, their defense mechanisms, a diagnosis, it's all drawn from their responses. Um, obviously, there's a whole coding system that could, that could be quantified, but the big um, shortcoming with this test, its critics say, is the over-pathologizing factor. Mm-hmm. People think that, you know, people don't necessarily have depression if they give these responses. Um, it's also highly subjective on behalf of both the evaluator and the participant. Um, so it definitely has its share of critics, but it does have good psychometric properties. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then, of course, you have the Myers-Briggs test. And I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid, no one knew what their Myers-Briggs type was, right? And now, you know, in 2019, people are putting their, you know, on their Tinder profiles, on their Instagrams. Uh, people are walking around with t-shirts. I'm an you know ENFP. I'm an ISTJ. Uh, so I think that it's very much which t-shirts did you see? Yeah, right. Well, that's the one in my closet. I think <laughs> I think it's very much um, it's it's mainstream now. And in case you don't know, I think many of you are familiar with Myers Briggs. Uh, but you have four um, you know scales, and it's very much reflective of the the five ocean characteristics. But you have extroversion versus introversion this is how do you interact with others e versus i are you talkative and outgoing that would be e or reserved and private i you have sensing versus intuition how do you take in in information Um, do you focus on how things really are that would be s or imagine the possibility of how they could be that would be n you have thinking versus feeling Uh, how do you prefer to make decisions do you make decisions using logic and reason that would be t or based on values and emotions that would be f and finally, judging versus perceiving, J versus P. How do you live your outer life? Do you live by rules and deadlines, J, or see rules as flexible and like to improvise and be spontaneous, P. 
And the test is, is pretty thorough. You know, it gives you 100 questions. Each one is designed to assess what percentage you are on each of these four scales. It's important to note that for any of these, um, you know, you're not going to be 100% on one and 0% on the other. It's, it's variable. So, for example, um, if you're introverted, it's not as if you're going to be 100% introverted. You know, everyone is, is 55% introverted, 45% extroverted, or, or vice versa. But that is so important, Ricky, the spectrum idea, because a lot of people might think of their Myers-Briggs type as extremism, mm-hmm. one thing or the other. I'm an extrovert, and that's it. You might be an extrovert, but you you might still have a good amount, like 40% introversion. Like, in my case, I'm an INFJ. I'm an introvert, technically, but a lot of my friends are like, you're not an introvert. Yeah. Like, you're always the one talking, always the one joking. Well, that's because I'm, I'm like, in some ways, also an extrovert. I'm, I think I'm, like, 48% or 46% extroverted and, and, like, predominantly introverted. So the spectrum idea is really important, and I think that's also something that's overlooked. Absolutely. Like, we all have traits of, 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 of both, and, and, and I appreciate that. Um, distinction. And then after the test, as Holly alluded to, you're given a four-letter acronym that describes which of the sides you fall on for each of these four criteria. So you mentioned INFJ, you have ISTJ, IN, INTP, uh, ESTP. For most of my life, I've, as you know, I've been an, an ESTJ. Uh, so that's extroverted over introverted, sensing over intuition, thinking over feeling, and judging over perceiving. And let me just real quick uh, share with you what it says on the Myers-Briggs website. Make it short. Yeah, no. Uh, so, so the ESTJ is known as the executive. Um, I'm not going to read all this, but uh, the executive, the ESTJ, are um, dutiful, hardworking, and task-oriented, possessing type A tendencies, can become um, impatient and frustrated when things fall, fail to unfold, uh, firm, direct, and opinionated, um, see, see, it says their verbiage tends to be succinct and to the point. Not always the case with me. Um, <laughs> and it says that they find inner control elusive and turn their focus outwardly, hoping to that achieving outer control will bring them inner calm and, uh, and security. And then what Myers-Briggs does, Holly, which is really interesting, mm-hmm. it gives you career paths for, your, for your, your type and it gives you other ESTJs in history. So for me, tell me if this sounds like it's a fit for me. Uh, military leader, business administrator, senior manager, entrepreneur, CEO, teacher, professor, detective, and then ESTJs in history. Three out of five. Uh, ESTJs in history, we have Andrew Jackson, Michelle Obama, Douglas MacArthur, LBJ, Simon Cowell, that's a weird one, Grover Cleveland. You know, very flattering, a lot of, lot of politicians there, um, and a lot of, lot of notable people. And let me actually, real quick, let me look up yours as well. Cause I'm, oh, I know mine. I'm curious. <laughs> I'm curious uh, what it says for the. You said I, INFP? No, I know mine. I'm a, I'm a soon to be psychologist. Okay, You're forgetting. So, so let's I'm hear. an INFJ, so I'm less than 1% of the population. I'm rare. Um, so the INFJs tend to be. The archetype, I think, is the advocate. Mm-hmm. And they seek meaning and connection in ideas, relationships, and material possessions. They want to understand what motivates people and are in insightful about others they are conscientious and committed to their firm values and have a clear vision of how to best serve the common good organized and decisive i'm not so decisive yeah but you know you could see how this might you know apply to you and how it might also overlap with some of the other um personality theories like ocean conscientiousness for example absolutely absolutely and i think that it's important to note you you identified some some um accurate uh, representations, descriptions, yeah. descriptions of the Myers-Briggs, as did I. But there is controversy about the Myers-Briggs right. because, after all, you guys heard me say Andrew Jackson, uh, you know, was an ESTJ in history. The Myers-Briggs manual wasn't published until 1965, and right. Jackson died in, you know, the early 1800s. How do they know what his personality is? I mean, he didn't sit right. down and take the test. So I guess, you know— It's a good point. What do you know about the controversy with, with the Myers-Briggs, and is it—do you think it's a reliable framework? Well, I know that Myers-Briggs is really helpful in finding in helping people find careers and in the professional fields, a lot of employers employers will give prospective employees the MB test to see if their personality will fit in the company. So, yeah. it's really useful in the professional field. Um it, there might be other areas where it's not so useful in, like in romantic relationships, for example. So, yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, it's big with sales companies like for me, um I've I, you know, when you sit and you interview for a sales company, 
they they want to get a sense of like, are you aggressive? What's your personality type? So they'll actually make you. T- I don't know if you've had this experience. They'll make you take the Myers Briggs test. I never had that, but I wish I had that experience. Yeah. and and then they'll tell you how you scored relative to to your peers. Um, and my understanding is that the Myers Briggs does exhibit significant deficiencies scientifically in terms right. of vo- validity. And it you, does have poor validity, reliability, and because I mentioned Ocean, it doesn't actually in- include all five characteristics of Ocean. It's missing neuroticism because right. you, you you know it, all four of those um you know criteria are pretty much duplicative of you know the O C A OSHA right uh, right. Uh, but not neuroticism, so it's not, um, you know, it doesn't include all of that. Well, I think, I don't know, I, I also think that this is something that's missing, but they might tend to subscribe to the belief that certain characteristics, like introversion, for example, might fall in the same line as neuroticism, which is a definite fallacy, but I think that might be one reason why it's missing here. I think that it's difficult for any test to paint a complete picture of, um, you know, encompassing all the personality characteristics um and myers-briggs wants wait till you hear about the enneagram yeah my <laughs> what a segue myers-briggs wants to be different so they omitted that um i think it's i think it's it's a it's a decent test for what it is right. to, to holly's point it's good for finding careers uh, pointing you in, in the right direction for um you know what you want to do with your life and in broad strokes giving you a sense of your personality but something is definitely uh missing from that and as holly mentioned you know this is a great opportunity for us to shift gears and talk about the enneagram which I had never heard of before she introduced to me, and many of you have probably never heard of the Enneagram, and you're very lucky because we actually have one of the leading Enneagram experts here with us now. Yeah, right. And so, no, I'm, I'm serious. You know more about this than, than anyone I know. And so, Holly, I guess the first question for you is what is the Enneagram and how does it differ from the Myers-Briggs test? Basically, it's a powerful tool for understanding ourselves and others. It has really complex roots. It actually has roots also in almost not every religion, but a lot of religions like Judaism, Buddhism, Christianity. It has references to the Kabbalah. So the teachings really expand. They they have a lot of eclectic perspectives here. Can you get into like like how it works? Because it, it's fairly sure. it's it's fairly complicated. Like I mean, you don't have to go into all the personality types, but just how does in general terms how does the Enneagram how, how does it characterize people based on their personalities? So. It's, a, it's really complex, so I'll try to make it as simple as possible. As mm-hmm. you learn more, it's really complex. But basically, there are nine types of people in the world, and there are characteristics to expand every type, to describe every type. So with every type comes um, uh, what's called essence, or, you know, someone's best self, you could think of it as. What, what's also included is virtues, fixations, passions... These are all things that characterize a type. So there are reasons why and how each passion or virtue came to be. But each, basically, there are these elements for every single type. So let me try and simplify this further. Mm-hmm. So like, give, a, give us an example type so people can kind of... Yeah, so I'm going to give you an example. So I'm a type 6, and there's archetypes for every single type. So I'm called the loyalist. And the type six has a holy idea or essence. Basically, when when the type six gets to be their best self, it's called holy faith or trust. And I know this sounds spiritual and some people have spiritual ideas about it, but it's not necessarily spiritual. And it does have scientific research um, supporting this theory. Um, So holy faith or trust. And basically, the type six has a basic fear of being without support and security. A lot of type six have a childhood orientation of not being supported, um, specifically by their caregivers. So that might be why they have a basic fear of being without support and a basic desire of having support and guidance to overcome many of their anxieties. So as you can see, if you're type six, you have a similar childhood orientation than the next type six. You might have had a difficult upbringing in this way of not having support from your caregivers. Mm -hmm. So these people have the fear of being without support. When they truly have essence or when they're their best self, they experience what's called holy faith or trust. And they trust that everything is okay. They have the support they need. They have the trust in the environment that everything will be okay. Their anxiety, they're in the thinking center of the Enneagram because there are three centers. 
head, heart, and gut. They're in the head center, the type six. They really can calm down. Their thinking is, is really at ease. Their worries are alleviated. They have a virtue courage because they normally have fearfulness. They might have, they might experience cowardice when they don't do what they think they should do because they're too afraid to. Right. But when they act out this virtue courage, they truly are, are, you know, acting without acting. They might have fear, but they're still acting. Okay. So, 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 so I know this sounds really complex. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's a lot of information. Um, but yeah. in terms of like the test itself, how does the test differ from Myers-Briggs? Is it also a hundred questions? So there are a lot of different inventories that you could take to identify your type. One, one of the good ones is a, um, can be found on eclecticenergies.com. Mm-hmm. It's a really lengthy test, though. There's also a test on the Enneagram Institute website. Um, so that can help you identify your type and also your wing. So every type, everyone has a primary type, um, and then everyone has a secondary type that, that they also act out the qualities of this type. And that's basically the surrounding type. So if I'm a type six, the loyalist, then I could either have a five wing or a seven wing. Mm -hmm. So even though there are nine types, because each type has a wing, let's do some quick math. I think that would be like 27 types total because you could be a one. Actually, no, it's not because you could be a one with a two wing. No, yeah, a one with a two wing or a nine wing. No, I think it's 18 types. Someone check check my math. Someone check. So there's nine types. But then each type. What, what's interesting about the enneagram? What I like personally is, is I think there's sixteen. Sorry, go ahead. Is the Myers is the uh, the Myers Briggs puts you in a bucket where you're an ESTJ, but there's no nuance or variation in that. You're just 18. an ex, you're just an executive. But as a Type Four individualist, I can either be a three wing, which is the the challenger, or no. What's the three wing? Um, the three is the achiever. So so I can as a Type Four individualist, I can either be I have a three wing, which is the achiever, or a five wing, which is the uh, the investigator. The investigator. And so even though my personality type is a type four and that's who I am, it's like I ha- there's, there's a different shade of it. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, like I, 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 it's like a sub-personality type. It can get even more specific than Myers-Briggs. But I want to ex- emphasize you're not in a box. Not only do you have your, your primary type and your wing, but you also can integrate to various types in the diagram. Mm-hmm. So if you're a type um, six, for example, if you're doing really well and you you have holy faith and you're your best self, what happens is you, you integrate from type six on the diagram to type nine and you start to act out the good <coughs> or healthy qualities of a type nine. When you're in stress, um, you disintegrate on the diagram and you move down to type three and you act out the bad or unhealthy qualities of type three. So you might be image conscious, um, too concerned about your performance, you know, just basically very anxious and acting out the type three unhealthy qualities. So there are very, there, are, you have every personality quality that comes with each type in you. The nine types is meant to represent all the personality qualities, traits, everything you could possibly be. So the reason why you're in a box, basically, when you're when to describe your type, is because that that represents your ego or your personality. Something went wrong in childhood for all of these types, and that's why they're the type that they are. But when they're doing well, when they're balanced, when they achieve essence and overcome their their vices or their fixations like cowardice for example or anxiety they actually have all of they can demonstrate all of the types and mm. be a very balanced person because they don't have the ego to control them they've achieved their holy essence and their their basic desire of supporting guidance for example for type 6 and they actually are balanced and right. they're not just the the 7 or 10 characteristics of a type six they have all of these qualities in them yes so i mean the most important takeaway from all that holly is the enneagram is dynamic whereas the myers-briggs is static you're you're, you know you're an estj and that's all you are the the enneagram is like your you can be a healthy or an unhealthy version of that type and then you can evolve what's the word you it integrate. You integrate into one, and you can also, when you step back, exactly disintegrate. You can integrate into a new type, or and which is a healthy step forward, or you can disintegrate and move back into an unhealthy one. So, 
it there's like different stages of development right. for the personality types. So you actually just d- described really well in a fast track class <laughs> what why the Enneagram is so dynamic because you're not only your type and you could be unhealthy, average, or unhealthy. It's a spectrum, but you can disintegrate to a to a type. You can integrate to a type. You you have a secondary type or a wing. And again, when you surpass the ego or the personality and all the stress that it comes with and exactly what is stressing you out on on a specific day for example you actually can evolve and embody all of the personality characteristics right. of the enneagram all of the nine types which is a very balanced individual and obviously it, it's very hard to achieve but bob proctor <laughs> yeah. who's who's you know the one of the key figures of the the, the book the secret um, and the law of attraction, he's doing really well, and I guarantee that he has the balance that embodies the nine types of the Enneagram. So there's so much literature on the Enneagram. I mean, I, we're really not even scratching the surface, but there's also, and, and you don't have to go into this because otherwise we'll be doing a, a two-hour discussion on the Enneagram, but there's the whole concepts of the thinking center, feeling center, and the instinctive center. You have the divisions of the types based on fear, shame, anger, and rage. If you go to the EnneagramInstitute.com um, and, and really educate yourself, there's there's a lot of, of things in in terms of like directions of integration and directions of disintegration, um, grouping of the types, things that we haven't even covered, um, where the Enneagram is pretty much a whole science. It's a whole personality psychology in and of itself. Yeah, and the Enneagram Institute, as you said, Ricky, is a great resource to learn about the Enneagram, but there's a lot of resources. Just Google Enneagram. Yeah, I just want to emphasize that the Enneagram is a a scientifically validated, although I, I have to admit it can be more validated, um, there's not too too much research done on it. It's not as well known, um, but it did it did exist earlier than Myers Briggs, um, and it does have its roots. So maybe I could do my my research in it. But I just want to emphasize that it's a great system. I've been following it for years. I identify with it and its accuracy a lot. And I've you know gotten some of my friends and family into it, and they can they all subscribe to its validity and its accuracy and truthfulness. And again, the personality when it comes to the Enneagram is a limitation. So we're gonna go we're gonna come back to the Enneagram in a minute. I, I know you're excited to keep talking about it, but I, I wanna touch on the question of can our personalities change over time? Because I think that this is perhaps the most um, significant a component of the discussion that we're having today is are you locked in you know are you frozen in time with whatever personality you have um, at any given point in your life and you know I if you think about the person that you were when you were a kid when you were 12 years old and think about who you became when you went to college at 18 and even a few years ago when you graduated at 22 um, would you use the same adjectives to describe yourself personally well, you're not locked into your personality in that it stays the same throughout all of the years. And if you're anxious, you're always going to be anxious. Or if you're shy, you're always going to be shy. But for better or for worse, you you do have the same personality characteristics. Um, so let me give an example. If you're an analytical person, then you're going to be analytical probably your whole life. But it might have led to crippling anxiety as a kid, whereas as you grew up, you learned new coping skills and how to deal with it. So you have more of a healthy level of your analytical nature. Mm. So you evolve in that your personality traits um, change in the way they present themselves, but I don't think they just shift completely or are replaced completely. I don't think someone who grew up really anxious or thoughtful is going to be really easygoing and laid back as they get older. They might just find ways to deal with their anxiety. I mean, would you personally use the same adjectives to describe yourself? Yeah, I really, I, I actually would. As a kid, I actually was very goofy and sociable and sometimes introverted. I cared a lot about my solitude, hard work, my relationships. So these are all things that really didn't change. My personality presented itself in the same way, but I just found better ways to deal with some of uh, my troublesome qualities, like my anxiety or my worry 
I did deal with my shyness in that I threw myself into situations and then it, you know, it, it was reduced over time. So it's not that these things went away. I would still use them to describe me in many facets, but I just found ways to deal with them. So they they don't exist as powerfully. Yeah, I would say, I, I would say that, 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 um, you know, makes a lot of sense for you. Uh, and your development's been pretty consistent over time for me. The same is true. Um, when I was when I was uh, you know a kid, I was very energetic and outgoing and extroverted, and I think those traits have stayed relatively the same in me over time. I did mention a couple episodes ago when you know I had my friends on for the bonus episode that I recognize I have calmed down quite a bit over the years. Um, so you know, potentially the per- the personality traits have been the same, but um, maybe they've been a little less 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 apparent, more subdued potentially, but. You know, let, let's look at the personality tests and, and the the sciences and, and see whether or not we should expect those results to change over time. So first, to get back to the Enneagram, um, do you think that your Enneagram type changes over time? And you kind of touched on this a little bit when you talked about um, evolution and all that, but um, if someone's like a type four or a type three, should they expect to be that type forever? So if you're a type four or three or any of the nine types, um, and the wing, the appropriate wing that you have, you are not going to change in that your type is going to change, but your level of health or whether you're average or unhealthy or healthy in, in the characteristics that you present each day will probably change because you're not static. You're a human being. You experience stress, stress and growth every day. Um, so your type changes when you integrate or when you're doing well and you're exhibiting healthy qualities you integrate to another level, um, and there's a whole stream of levels that you can integrate to. Um, there's one type that you can integrate to in particular, which you can find online, but you can change when you integrate, when you disintegrate. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that we, we covered when we discussed the uh, dynamism of the Enneagram as a model compared to other tests. So it is, it is kind of an important distinction that um, you're, not, you're not trapped in the same type forever. And there's, there's integration, disintegration, evolution, and healthy and unhealthy uh, expressions of, of your types. Um, the Myers-Briggs is a little bit different. According to Myers-Briggs theory, your personality type is inborn and it doesn't change. But what will change is the way that you exhibit your type. Um, so as you age and, and mature, you develop different facets of, you know, whether you're an ESTJ or an INFP, um, your, it's, it, you, you know, your, your expressions of that type will be variable. But, you know, that does sound a little contradictory, and I think that's part of the reason why the Myers-Briggs test has come under fire um, by some of the, you know, the, the, the psychological community as a reliable measure of personality. Uh, I do think that we can get more clarity on um, personality uh, type evolution over time if we look back to the big five ocean personality traits. That's what we talked about at the beginning of the episode. So longitudinal studies, these are studies where they follow one or more people over a long period of time. They suggest that the big five personality traits do tend to be relatively stable over the course of adulthood, meaning that if you have adverse events like um, you know, loss of a, a parent um, or loss of a pet divorce, um, you know, losing your job, what have you, it's not going to overall in the long term affect your ability to think creatively or to be social or to be altruistic. Those those things will stay the same over time. Does that, do you think that that stands to reason? Does, does that um, sound pretty sensible? I think that generally, as I said, that although people aren't static, they can only do so much to to change their personality. We are all born with distinct genetics. We're all born into a specific environment with specific caregivers that affect how we turn out and develop over the course of adulthood. Um, So that that affects how we are very strongly. There's only so much we can do. So it's not surprising that our personality and the the big five personality traits would be stable. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, there there isn't much change. But there are, if you look at each specific uh, letter, each variable in ocean, there are some generalizations that happen as as people age. Um, so, so it's it's not it's not anything significant. But th- these studies have found that on the whole, as people age, they they tend to become less extroverted, less neurotic and less open to experience, and they tend to become more agreeable, 
and more conscientious as they get older. So if you, so I guess we go in order of, of ocean of letters. Openness goes down, conscientiousness goes up, extroversion goes down, agreeableness goes up, and neuroticism goes down um, as people get older. And I guess this kind of makes sense, you know, because as you're as you're growing up, um, you know, you spend more time by yourself or um, with you know a select few loved ones, so you're not necessarily as outgoing and, and you know seeking uh, those social environments. And for example, conscientiousness, uh, you know, you become more intelligent, more ingrained in your in your habits. So I think that 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 makes sense as well. What's what what's your take on that? Do you think that uh, these these generalizations hold true according to these studies? Yeah, I think that they make sense um, hearing these results. It's a little surprising to me, though, that you get less open with time, especially because you get more agreeable over time. So I'm curious as to why you're not as open to new experiences, Um, I guess, because a lot of new experiences um, and experimentation and whatnot happens in young adulthood and as you age and develop a new family in some cases, but maybe people aren't as interested and they don't have as many opportunities. But I guess the sentiment just isn't there. I guess that's where that comes from. Absolutely. I think that's, that's an excellent point, and it shows that it's difficult to make generalizations when it comes to personality. And we could talk, I mean, I, mean, I could do a whole episode on, on, on happiness and how that tracks over time, but there's there's the very famous happiness U-curve, which is the idea that um, in the beginning of your life when you're a child, uh, you know, you're like the happiest you've ever been. Then as you go through adolescence, your happiness goes down um, towards the middle of your life. It's you know rock bottom happiness. It's your like midlife crisis, your midlife depression, and then in your 50s, 60s, 70s, once you have that clarity, that wisdom that comes from old age, uh, you become exceedingly happy again, forming this this U shape. And I mean, some of these traits might um, coincide with the happiness curve, but as you said, it is a little bit contradictory, so it's hard to hard to kind of generalize. But on the whole, it sounds like you know from from what you've shared and and, and the literature that that I've shared as well. Uh, your personality can evolve over time and you're not stuck in, in a certain mindset and also goes back to what you said before about brain plasticity and, and the way that you know uh, that that can uh, factor in as well. Yeah, and I just want to emphasize it's so important to do the inner work, whether you're looking into your Enneagram type and the appropriate recommended methods for your type. Um, so for example, type 9 has a problem typically with indolence or not being action-oriented because you know they they enjoy harmony harmony and they don't want to engage in as much action they avoid confrontation so a recommendation for them might be to push themselves a little and do things hang out with their friends do social events things that they don't normally feel comfortable doing Mm -hmm. um so regardless if you look into your enneagram type just doing that inner work questioning what your ego limitations are what you don't feel comfortable doing what your fears are your fixations and trying to throw yourself in the fire and get past those limitations because the more you do that the more you expand yourself the more you challenge yourself um, and the more you can evolve to demonstrate healthy qualities it's almost like it, it reminds me of the discussion we had in episode nine. Um, I don't know if you listened to that one, but where uh, where Jeremy and I talked about free will, free will versus um, predestination, and you, I think what you're what you're saying is that you have to almost convince yourself that that you do have free will and and your personality is malleable, so you can do the work to change it and to improve, as opposed to if you did believe that your personality was you know impossible to to change over time, you would kind of be stagnant and you wouldn't look for areas to you know to get better and augment yourself yeah you have to have the mindset or kind of implement the mindset that change is possible that nobody's perfect and you might not achieve like self-actualization or essence right away but you can definitely definitely expand to be a more healthy version of yourself and you might even surprise yourself and actually um display qualities of what feels like your best self if you really put in the effort for sure. Um, I, I couldn't agree with that more. And the last area of personality psychology that I want to address um, on this pod is is personality disorders. And this is a really, really interesting kind of dark topic, but I think I think uh, it's, it would be helpful to have your perspective um, and, you know, just, just kind of look at whether or not uh, something is a disorder or if something is just a personality trait. And we kind of touched on this a little bit in our mental illness uh, discussion, but I want to describe to you, briefly as I can, the most common four personality disorders, and I want to, uh, I'm going to include a link online where you can learn more about them. So kind of to start, 
We have the paranoid personality disorder, and that's characterized by a per pervasive distrust of others, including friends, families, and partners. The person is guarded, suspicious, and constantly on the lookout for clues or suggestions to validate his fears, has a strong sense of personal rights, overly sensitive, feels shame and humiliation, and tends to withdraw from others and struggle with building close relationships. Um, and uh, by the way, a lot of these might sound like people you know. If you're listening out there, you're like, that sounds like my husband. Um, so that's PPD. Antisocial personality disorder is more common in men than women and is characterized by a callous unconcern for the feelings of others. The person disregards social rules and obligations, is irritable and aggressive, acts impuls impulsively, lacks guilt, and fails to learn from experience. He usually doesn't have problems finding relationships and can even appear charming. Look at you know Ted, Ted Bundy, for example, a charming psychopath. But the relationships are turbulent and short-lived, um, and <clears throat> it is the mental disorder, the personality disorder, most closely correlated with crime. Um, that's the antisocial personality disorder. You have borderline personality disorder. That's when the person lacks a sense of self and experiences feelings of emptiness and fears of abandonment. Um, you have outbursts of anger and violence and impulsive behavior, suicidal threats and acts of self-harm. Um, and the reason why it's called borderline is because it lies on the borderline between anxiety disorders and psychotic disorders like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, um, usually results from childhood sexual abuse and is more common in women. That's borderline personality disorder. And finally, the last one, which I think all of us have today, narcissistic personality disorder. The person has an extreme feeling of self-importance, a sense of entitlement, and a need to be admired. Uh, he or she is envious of others and expects them to be the same of him, lacks empathy, and lies and exploits others to achieve his aims, may appear self-absorbed, controlling, selfish, or insensitive, um, and flies into destructive anger and revenge when obstructed or ridiculed. And this one has gained a ton of traction in the public consciousness, especially with Instagram and social media platforms where everyone is a little bit uh, narcissistic. So as I'm reading these descriptions, you might be thinking, that sounds a lot like me or that sounds like someone I know. And so Holly, our listeners are, you know, are, are, are eager here. Let's say that you're a little paranoid and suspicious and you have a neurotic temp temperament. Can you be diagnosed with paranoid personality disorder? And what's the difference between having a paranoid personality and actually having a clinical disorder? The biggest thing is that it has to impair daily functioning in a negative way. It has to inter interfere with a person's ability to maintain relationships and function socially and in work situations. So a person could be paranoid. A lot of people are, in fact, they're very paranoid, but they don't have a personality disorder. They don't have PPD because their paranoia, they're able to deal with in some way. They're able to cope with, um, shut off when they need to, when they need to do a task at work or when they're on a date or whatever the case may be. They're able to cope with their paranoia. It's not so debilitating. Mm -hmm. um, so when it gets to be so debilitating, they might act out very irrational things, such as having um, eccentric ideas and conspiracy theories about they might be involved in work battles with other people because they're suing um, others or companies based on the irrational belief that someone did something to them or someone is out to get them just very obvious and clear things that are irrational that they actually truly believe so again impairment of daily functioning in general life work love relationships it's generally very obvious and it's very debilitating for the person experiencing it and, and I know I, I asked the question with paranoid personality disorder in mind, but I also want to call attention to narcissistic personality disorder because I'm sure you know, and you and I have discussed quite a bit, you know, we live in a day and age where all of us are, all of us have traits of narcissism. All of us are obsessed with our image and how many likes we're getting on, you know, an Instagram post and, you know, uh, whether or not friends and family are paying us enough attention so couldn't you make the case, like like given your definition, that everyone has narcissistic personality disorder? Yeah, you're right, Ricky. And honestly, many of us, especially millennials and people who have adopted daily social media lifestyles of putting their lives online and getting likes, are on the spectrum, somewhere on the spectrum of narcissism. Um, as psychologist Craig Malkin said in his book, Rethinking Narcissism, The Secret to Recognizing and Coping with Narcissists, most of us fall somewhere on the narcissism spectrum. And in fact, some level of narcissism is both 
healthy and necessary. So I guess this falls um, more along the lines of self-love and loving ourselves, wanting attention and a sense of belonging. Um, so in that sense, that may be characterized as narcissism, um, but it's not clinical narcissism. Clinical narcissism is only accounting for 1% of the population. So again, some level of narcissism is healthy and necessary, um, especially in order to survive in our modern day uh, culture of technology and social media. However, only 1%, a small percentage of the population is really clinical narcissist. So it's not really a problem of pathology for most people. Okay, so so the two biggest factors there, what you mentioned before, does it impair your your functioning? Is is it you know disruptive to to your life quality? And number two, is it consistent? Correct. Okay, great. Yeah, and and, and it's important. It's also important to note that per, a lot of personality disorders, much like mental illness in general, go undiagnosed. So you know, there's tens of millions of Americans that suffer with um, you know the conditions that I, that I mentioned: borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial and paranoid. Right. But a lot of them you know, are either in denial or they don't get treatment. And so like, like personally, do you believe that, that you, that you know, that you interact with people who suffer from these personality disorders? Just how, how common or, or, you know, how rare do you believe these to be? Well, I definitely know people and I don't even think they're aware. No names. <laughs> you don't, you, so, so let's say, you know, someone that has NPD or PPD, you don't think that they, that they, ha that they're aware that they have it, or you think they're aware and it's untreated? I think they're aware of their particular issues to some extent. Like they may, you know, notice that they seek a lot of attention, for example, or need validation to feel happy. But I think even that's a, you know, that's a level of extreme. I don't think some people even know that. But I don't think that most people think in such diagnostic terms. I don't think they think, oh my God, there's something really wrong with, not that there's something wrong with people with mental illness, but... I don't think people attach a diagnosis to everything. I don't think they think I have possibly BPD and I have to seek DBT treatment for this. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people in the psych field might definitely be that way. Sometimes to um, an extreme degree, they might overdiagnose themselves, but I don't think most people do, even though they might identify that they have some limitations with their personality. Yeah, and and for sure, I think that I think that a lot of people either don't have the awareness or don't have the, the you know the, the means, the resources to get treatment and, and to get diagnosed. And also, I mean, we haven't even mentioned there are so many personality disorders out there. Uh, I mentioned the four most common, but we haven't even touched on avoidant personality disorder, dependent personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, um, schizoid personality disorder. And I'm going to include a link where you can actually read about all of these. And if you do, you know, think that you might have one, or people you people in your life may have one. It might be helpful just to get the information. I'm probably going to be doing another episode, uh, you know, on on this topic when it comes to like sociopathy and psychopathy and sanity. Just because I, you know, we don't have we don't have enough time to really do that justice. But the, the whole idea of figuring out if you're sane, if someone's insane, insane, I think that 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 would be interesting to explore as well. And any last notes on the personality disorders, Holly? Yeah. So again, this is a very important topic, and it's really important to provide support. If you do know someone with a personality disorder, maybe even encourage them to go to treatment or possibly to seek medication. Personality disorders are very common. Nearly 31 million Americans or 15% of the population have at least one serious personality disorder. Mm. The highest risk comes for people, minority women with little education and low income. So this is a very pervasive problem. Um, it definitely can be treated and support is needed. Absolutely, couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, just, just to kind of tie up, I know, I know it's been a, a very uh, inclusive episode here. Want to make sure we we kind of wrap up all the takeaways. So uh, we started off the discussion of what is personality, laying out the the big five um, characteristics of ocean openness, uh, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism. At this point, we've said it so many times. I think everyone's going to remember those. Uh, mm -hmm. We talked about the nature nurture debate on how the uh, you know how the personality types um, are embedded and evolve over time. Um, we talked about the different me measures of tests, the Rorschach, the Myers-Briggs, and of course, 
the Enneagram. We went into the ways that your personality can um, change and evolve overnight um, through the lens of these tests, and of course the personality disorders, um, and you know what what exactly you can do if you think that you might have um, one of these, and the differences between a trait and a disorder. Um, any final notes? Work on your personality. Yeah, yeah, do and better. Ta- and take an Enneagram questionnaire. Yeah, it's like it's like D- DM me for questions. No, no, no. It's like yeah, your personality could use a lot of work. Keep it up. Um, <laughs> That's actually a pretty good, pretty good insult. It's like, uh, oh, like I, re- I heard today on the podcast that personality is more malleable, so, so you're gonna have to put the time in. Like, um, no, but that's in all seriousness. That's actually not. not I, I know we're joking, but that's actually not not bad advice. It's right. it's kind of encouraging. Like, if you think about it, you know, you go to the gym to work on your body. Um, you go to the you know the nail salon to improve the way you look. Um, you go to school to improve your intellect. Why not actually take the time to improve your personality since we've already concluded that it, it, you know, it can work. And I mean, how can people improve their personalities, right? Like surrounding themselves by other people with good personalities, learning. Uh, Self-care and giving yourself the, the time and importance that you deserve will make you feel better and allow you to exhibit healthy personality qualities. Mm. I don't know. That's actually, that's actually a really good question. How can people improve their personalities? I, I, think, I think you're right. Like I think our personalities... Um, in large part, they start internally, and we we give off what we feel inside. So, um, getting in the right frame of mind and being a, being a positive force and doing things extrinsic, intrinsically is the key to uh, you know becoming a force with your personality. Right. Next week, we have an ex- exciting episode planned uh, with a guest that we've had on before, um, and we're going to be discussing the future of the nine to five job with rapid advances in robotics and AI and machines beginning to carry out traditionally human activities. What will this mean for the 9 to 5 job, the cost of college, why is college so expensive and getting pricier, and what would student loan forgiveness mean for the cost of college, and finally, cryptocurrency for dummies, all about blockchain, Bitcoin, and why the future of money just might be crypto. That's going to be next week on Nervous Habits. Holly, thanks for joining me on the, on the podcast. Thanks, boss. Well, uh, this is you know this is your, your, your second rodeo, so uh, maybe we'll be hearing from you again. Hope, hopefully, uh, you know this one is as well received as the first time you were on the show. Um, but thank you again thank for coming. You. Uh, thank you, guys. As I said, you know, feel free to, to shoot me an email: nervousheppspodcast at gmail dot com. Nervousheppspodcast at gmail dot com. Um, follow us on Instagram at nervousheppspodcast and on Twitter at nervousheppits underscore. We are also on YouTube now. Uh, if you search nervous habits podcast, thanks so much for listening and stay nervous. Take care guys.